Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Okay, today we are continuing our series, which we began a couple weeks ago when we talked about the intermediate heaven or the intermediate state, which is where we go when we die as we await the new heavens and the new earth that are not yet in place, but will be by the time we, uh, by the time we get there. Um, so when we die, now we go to this place called paradise or the intermediate heaven. It's where the Lord is and we join him as we await the new heavens and the new earth. As Casey said, last week we talked about assumptions that we have about heaven that probably aren't true, probably are not accurate, and the reality is far better than our assumptions were. So if you missed those two, you may want to take a moment, go to the church's website or YouTube, uh, and you can pick those up. Heaven will be a much better place than we can imagine because we'll be with the Lord Some of us have had challenging experiences with church along the way, and I think it has influenced our relationship with God. We're talking today about the object of our desire, which is, of course, God and being with him in heaven. And I I know that many people have been hurt in their church journey. For some, it has to do with leadership failure. For some, it has to do with Um, division or conflict in the church and you didn't think Christians would, you know, do that sort of thing and you were hurt in the midst of that either in your small group or in a larger gathering. I I, I know that... um, with my with my own kids, um, they have sort of been thinking about some of the experiences of their youth in church now that they're adults. And we didn't really do a lot of reflection at the time, but since then we've done reflection about how in youth ministry and the settings of which I was a part, there was a lot of pressure or we could even say manipulation for young people to make some kind of a commitment to Jesus. So this was especially prominent in camps, but also like in Sunday evening youth gatherings. And it was like the youth pastor would get check marks for every student that made a decision to follow Jesus or made some other kind of a spiritual commitment. And so because of those metrics, the youth pastor would kind of Um, push young people in spiritual directions that they may not have been particularly ready for. And I don't know how many um, of those who are peers of of my children, but there's a lot who have been hurt by feeling manipulated uh, when they were in church. Here is my uh, story, Bev, about uh, Pastor Bob. So Pastor Bob Anderson and Ruth um, were dear friends before they went to be with the Lord. Ten days ago, I was doing a service for Phil Oaks from our congregation, a Korean War uh, veteran, a Korean War Marine. And when I go down to Tahoma, I love to go over to Pastor Bob's uh, gravesite there. He was a World War II Marine, and uh, so it's just a way of giving honor and tribute to him and to Ruth. She's buried there with him. And uh, Bob was um, an amazing friend of my parents, and then Barb and me, and then when my dad passed away fairly young in 1990, um, Bob and Ruth became Grandpa Bob and Grandma Ruth, and he became a dear friend, mentor, and really a surrogate father 
um, during that time, that time in our lives. And so they would come to birthday parties and things. They were just kind of drawn into our family. But Bob told a story uh, that involved Bev. And Bev, I hope I get this close to accurate. But Bob told the story of being a youth camp speaker because he always got results. And so youth camp after youth camp, other churches and other communities in the Midwest would ask Bob to be the speaker. And Bob said that one time he was speaking to the young people and um, that he got a good response and they came forward to the altar, but Bev didn't. And are you recognizing this story, Bev? <laughs> okay. Hope your dad didn't make it up. Um, so, so Bev was sitting back and hadn't come up and and Bob was a little concerned about the fact that Bev wasn't up with the others. And so when he had a moment, he went back to Bev and um, said, um, sweetheart, or whatever he called you, Bev, um, he said, um, how come you're not up with the other kids down front? And Bev said, well, Daddy, I've confessed everything that I can think of, and I've given my heart to Jesus enough times um, that I, I just don't think I need to go up there. And that, that conversation with Bev, Bob told me, was so profound that he changed the way that he worked with young people. And um, he said that he no longer got invited to do youth camp speaking because he <laughs> no longer got the, got the results. So the, the, the point of all of this is that we need to do better as a church in a whole variety of ways because the face of God gets sort of translated through the church and we have to be careful because... God is the object of our desire, certainly in heaven, but now as well. I don't know if we all understand the incredible thing it will be to be with the Lord. Some of us in the room may not have had a relationship with the Lord until recently. Others of us may have enjoyed a friendship for some time. For some of us, perhaps it's been weddings uh, where it's been in a, in a church setting or a memorial service uh, in a church setting or Sunday morning when we gather together. But within the context of relationships, we find that we're friends with the Lord in some sense, but nothing special. So it may be hard to understand why our Lord, God, as the object of our desire because it's so incredibly wonderful. I, uh, it's hard for me to do a sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis, and I don't want to disappoint you today, but he said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. In other words, ultimately, there is no happiness and peace apart from the object of our desire. So in classic pedagogy, I have three points for us today so you can track uh, how long before brunch is available to you. So we begin the heavenly experience of God's presence now. We can begin the heavenly experience of God's presence now. One of the challenges that churches like ours find is that we have a strong commitment to the scripture as being the inspired word of God. And if it's the inspired word of God, then we understand it to be truth, to convey truth to us. 
And we go so far as to suggest that there are many things that we can understand as propositional truth, statements about God, about the world that are true because they come to us through the scriptures. The danger that we have, even if we know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, the danger we have is that we can know a lot about God without knowing God, without having a relationship with God. And so it's a particular danger for we who look towards the scripture as truth because it's dangerous to leave it at the intellectual level and not the heart level. In John 17, 3, we read this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we know God through the insight gained from scriptures, but we also know God through experience. King David was not content with a theoretical faith. He longed to know God. And the Psalms are these beautiful expressions of David wrestling with his faith, sometimes asking God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wrestled with God, but he wrestled in the context of relationship. God became more than a friend to David. We read in Psalm 73, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you ever desired something so much that you just can't get enough? I'm going to tell a story. I don't think it's going to embarrass Barb. But David... (laughs) I know, I know, famous last words, right? Famous last words. David thirsted for the Lord. God became the object of his desire. So Barbara and I met when I was seven years old and she was six years old. And we moved, I know it confused you because some of you think I'm Canadian and some of you think I'm American. And uh, so I'm American by birth, born in Wisconsin. When I was seven, moved to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And my dad was a pastor, took a church up there. And I was seven when we moved. And Barb was a little girl in the church at six years old. And we were friends <clears throat> as long as I can remember growing, growing up together. We, were, we just had a good friendship. In high school, um, I'd give her a ride home from church sometimes, but nothing particularly romantic. In fact, it was a little embarrassing because um, we would go to A&W. That was where we would stop. And I, and I had to say, Barb, I guess we were good enough friends for this, but I had to say, Barb, all I have is enough money for a root beer, so please don't order a hamburger. <laughs> so... We, uh, we had that kind of a, that kind of a relationship. Um, I went to work in California, uh, living with Wes and Carolyn, who are here this morning, and uh, I wrote Barb a card when, uh, when I was in California, uh, a postcard, and I signed it, Love, Joy, Peace. And Barb suggested she preferred one of the three better than the other two uh, in, that, in that particular card. So about six months later, well into our junior year, she was in nursing school. I was in uh, the University of Alberta. And we, uh, we, we, on a Saturday, didn't have a lot to do. So we decided that we would um, 
go to the uh, open house at the uh, Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. They had a great open house. So we went to the open house, and that was fine. And then we had lunch together, and that was fine. And then um, we went to a, um, a record shop and bought a eight-track, an eight-track. Uh, and, uh, and it was of the Beach Boys. Uh, and I had a 68 Mustang, so we were driving around with the 68 Mustang with the beach, with the beach boys playing. And uh, one thing led to another, and soon we were watching The Late Show together. And what started out as friends in the morning was something very different than that, than that evening. And uh, as spring turned into summer, I found that I could focus on little other than Barb. All I wanted to do was be with her. She uh, went to visit her family. The nursing school was in the city which we lived, and her family was about 500 miles away. And I missed her so badly, I quit my summer job and drove to the place where her family was so that I could be with her. Her mom wasn't too impressed because she wanted Barb to be with her as many days that summer as she could. We drove then uh, in my Mustang to Banff where my family had gathered and Barb met a bunch of my family. Uh, and then we, uh, we then headed home and after a couple of months um, we got married and went back to Banff for our honeymoon. In those days, there was one object of my desire. I just wanted to be with Barb. And even though I was ambitious and I was in college and planning to go on to graduate school, I kind of resigned myself to the fact none of that stuff really mattered as long as I could be with her. I felt like I could be happy anywhere as long as she was with me. And well, we've, like the rest of you, I assume, had our challenges along the way. It's been a great run for 49 years and counting. So I want to ask you, with this extended story about a romantic relationship with my wife of 49 years, I want to ask you, does anything ring true about that relative to your relationship with God? Is God the object of your desire? Do you long to be with him in such a way that little matters apart from being with him and being in relationship with him? You may feel this way, this attraction to God in the context of a, of a time when we've lost hope, when we're dealing with depression or anxiety and God comes in and ministers to us. Perhaps it's in a church service when Casey asked us to meditate on that New Jerusalem song. Perhaps it's a meaningful passage of scripture in a morning devotion that's just right for that moment. Or, as I often say, driving down into Edmonds and seeing the Olympic range on Puget Sound. It may be listening to Bach, who signed all his classical music scores, Sola Dio Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Friends, I think we want so much more of his presence. And like Barb and I, we can be friends with God without falling in love with God. We can know about God without knowing him. God's wonderful plan for his people is so much about his presence 
you remember in the Christmas season, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus went back to be with the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit, and this is what he said about that in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer and again in a little while you'll see me. So God's spirit lives in the heart of every one of us who have made a commitment to him and we then have that within us to draw us from friendship into deep relationship. Second thing I want to suggest this morning is that we need to experience God as more than a compartment of our lives. We often associate God with what we're doing this morning, with church, with his sanctuary, and that's rightly so. David said this, he said, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of God uh, all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's often in the context of worship where we experience the Lord. It's often in these kinds of settings where our spirits are attuned and they they open us to the Lord, but it's only the beginning. It's only that sort of a first fruits of being drawn into God's presence through his love. I think one of the great challenges of the American life in the 21st century is how we attempt to get a check mark on the to-do list of life. We do our religious thing along with raising our kids, along with going to work, along with our recreation. It's just another box. We went to church on Sunday and got a check mark. But the truth of the scripture is that God can't be put into a religious compartment. It's not just here at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. David knew God in the circumstances of his life, not just in a worship gathering. In Psalm 139, we read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, you dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Friends, that's not just heaven. That's right now. David was a man after God's own heart and he understood something about God's presence and living it 24-7. In Psalm 73, we read what Dan had for us this morning. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart my portion forever. And then finally, friends, as we move toward a conclusion this morning, the third point is the present experience that we are having is just a foretaste of heaven. It's easy to think about heaven as being a extended eternal church service. 
After all, that's where we come to do spiritual things, right? Religious things. Revelation 21:22 says there will be no temple in heaven. So perhaps there won't be church services as we know them. But there's no question, friends, that we'll worship God. Apparently in corporate gatherings as well as as we go about our new lives in heaven. Paul tells us we should be worshiping God as we go. To the Thessalonians, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you have an attitude of prayer as you go about your life? When you hear about a tragedy, do you immediately go into prayer for the people that are affected by that tragedy? Do you listen to God's voice speaking to you, perhaps in the voice of another? We offer these expressions of worship as we enjoy a relationship with God in all of these circumstances of life. Paul writes some instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, and that includes all of us here today, Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You know, God also wants us to enjoy ourselves. Paul encourages the Christians in Rome when he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's really interesting. We we have sermons that are on materialism because idolatry is a danger for us. The idolatry of worshiping things, whether that's the new car or something else in our lives that, that um, we think will ultimately give us pleasure. It's a form of idolatry. It's materialism. But by the same token, what's interesting is that scripturally God does want us to enjoy ourselves and some of the things that we have been blessed with, we shouldn't feel guilty about. We should simply enjoy the blessing and the bounty of God always with an attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving. But all of these things are but a foretaste of heaven. We will have enjoyed the many gifts of the gift giver, but they will pale in comparison to getting to know personally the giver of those gifts. Let me say that one more time. Having these gifts in our lives are wonderful, but they will pale in comparison to getting to know the giver of those gifts. Randy Alcorn retells a story that was originally published in 1871 by Father Boudreau, and I conclude with this this morning. The story was originally called The Happiness of Heaven. He says, A kind-hearted king finds a blind, destitute orphan boy while hunting in a forest. The king takes the boy into his palace, adopts him as his son, and provides for his care. He sees that the boy receives the finest education. The boy is extremely grateful and loves the king, his new father, with all his heart. When the boy turns 20, a surgeon performs an operation on his eyes, and for the first time he is able to see. 
The boy, once a starving orphan, has for some years been a royal prince at home in the king's palace. But something wonderful has happened, something far greater than the magnificent food, gardens, libraries, music, and wonders of the palace. The boy is finally able to see the father he loves. Boudreaux writes, I will not attempt to describe the joys that will overwhelm the soul of this fortunate young man when he first sees the king whose manly beauty, goodness, power, and magnificence he has heard so much. Nor will I attempt to describe the other joys which fill his soul when he beholds his own personal beauty and the magnificence of his princely garments whereof he has also heard so much heretofore. Much less will I attempt to picture his exquisite and unspeakable happiness when he sees himself adopted into the royal family, honored and loved by all, together with all the pleasures of life within his reach, all this taken together as a beatific vision for him, a vision of God. The boy's rescue by his father is analogous to our conversion. We come to know God's love and enjoy his presence. When we die, we'll be with the Lord, and that will be wonderful, though it's uncertain whether we will be able to fully see God's face. The great day we await is the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth, where we are told, as resurrected beings, we will actually see God's face. The vision of God has a transforming power, writes Boudreaux. Thus the soul, because she only sees God as he is, is filled to overflowing with all knowledge. She becomes beautiful with the beauty of God, rich with his wealth, holy with his holiness, and happy with his unutterable happiness. Friends, in this life we have but a taste of good things. We taste the good things that God has for us. And in the midst of the challenges of life today, we have the promise of a God who never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And we can have a wonderful anticipation of that day when we will see as we will be seen the way that we were intended to see and be seen And then we will behold the object of our desire, the giver of every good and precious gift. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. And thank you for this time looking at heaven. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ that great joy will fill their hearts as they seek to know you in increasing ways over the days ahead in preparation for seeing you face to face in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.